God is, is the giver of all the good gifts that we've received. And two, we want to give it back to him. So this is not just some like part of our service that we have to do to keep in our religious acts, but this is a part of you uh, connecting with the Father and giving back to him. So uh, Jesus, we bless these offerings. We, we specifically ask that our hearts would, would rejoice to give back to you just some of what you've given to us. So Jesus, we lift up your name in that way. We pray, amen. Well, as they take the offering this morning, uh, we are in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn there right now, Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. We're going to be looking at five undeniable essentials to continuing in the faith. Five undeniable essentials to continuing in the faith. Um, it was about 2003 and four. I played on a basketball team. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I was homeschooled, so I played on a homeschool basketball team. And before you make fun of us, we were good. We were like the New York Yankees of our homeschool league in the state of Nebraska. We had a JV, which some guys, like some teams only had six players, and if you know anything about basketball, you need five players just to get a team. So some teams were made up of six players, so we were like, just really had a great team. We had, we had two, uh, two JV teams playing and we were just a good team. So my senior year, we were playing uh, just a really good season. We only lost a couple games. And every week our coach would, would practice us and, and he practiced uh, things like the essentials of basketball. Do you know what the essentials of basketball are? Passing, shooting, dribbling, what else? That is not essential, but I was good at that, yes. Rebounding and defense, all right? So that's your, your essentials of basketball. So we would practice those five things every single week. And I started to notice a pattern in myself that I really, I was good at three of them. I was good at defense. Whoa, and the Lord said, let there be sound. Um, I was really good at defense. I was really good at rebounding. I was really good at passing, but shooting and dribbling, not so much. And so coach would have us, you know, do drills where we'd uh, have to dribble with our, our opposite hands. We had a, a good hand, and for me, it was my right hand. I was good at dribbling with that hand. But my left hand, I was just terrible at. So he'd have us dribble up and down the court with our opposite hand. And I started, like, realizing I'm just not that good at it. So... Like when coach doesn't look, I'll just switch hands and I'll dribble with my right hand. Or he'd have us do a drill where we would uh, have to make five free throws in a row. And if we uh, made them, then we could join the game of pickup basketball that was happening at the other end. If we didn't make it, we just had to stand down there and shame and continue to shoot until we made our five in a row. And I never made five in a row. So I lied. And I pretended like I made five in a row because I didn't want to stand down there by myself alone while all my friends played five-on-five five pickup basketball. So I was good at three of the essentials of basketball, but I just, I didn't want to try at the other two because it was kind of embarrassing. I didn't think I was going to get any better. And let's be honest, I'm not that tall. I don't have a future in the NBA. Just, you know, I don't have to go that far. So I'm just going to focus on what I'm good at and pretend that the other two things don't really matter. So like I said, we had a really good team my senior year, and so we made it to state, homeschool state. Um, 
and we're playing for the state championship in Nebraska against our arch rival Sargent, who has only six players on their team, and we've got like 20 or 30 or four, I don't even know. We had a lot of players. So I was uh, the sixth man, uh, mostly because I didn't, I didn't try it, like growing in my gifts of shooting and dribbling. And so we're, we're back and forth the whole game with, with Sargent, and uh, we're ahead, and they're ahead, and we're ahead, and I'm in the game, and I'm just, I'm doing really well. And we get down to the last minute, and we're down by, by two points. And so, or by one point, I'm sorry. So we shoot a three with about 30 seconds left. We take the lead. Um, by two, so we're up by two points. Sergeant gets the ball, they have this specific offense that they run, and they run it a couple times, and one of their guys gets open, and he shoots a three, and it goes in with about five or six seconds left in the game. Well, at this point in the game, coach knows he needs people that can dribble and can shoot. And those two things I can't do. So I'm not in the game, I'm on the bench watching my senior year, the last game of my career, uh, from, the, from the sidelines. And so well, I remember this to the day where I was, where, as I was watching, they inbound the ball to Michael Engelkemeyer, <laughs> who catches the ball at the free throw line. And there's still at least five seconds left in the game, but he doesn't really know that. He thinks it's like zero seconds. So from the free throw line, then half court, then the free throw line, then the hoop, he chucks it from way back here. And he just throws a laser beam at the hoop. And I'm sitting there like, oh, man. Senior year, we lost the state championship. So I'm watching this like rocket ship of a ball just shoot right at the hoop, and it goes in. <laughs> and we freak out. We storm the court, and there's still actually time left on the clock, but we don't care, and we win the state championship on a last second three quarters court shot. It was incredible. Uh, one of the kind of highlights of my athletic career, very short lived athletic career. But I remember looking back on that and and wondering why I, I didn't even care that I was on the bench. It was my senior year. The kid who shot the ball was a sophomore. At the time, there were two sophomores on the, on the court, but I knew that they were better than me, and I just, I just didn't care that I wasn't on the court. And looking back, I, I don't know if it was because I just knew I was never going to go far with it, so why try? Like, I'm not going to play in college. I'm not going to play in the NBA, so... So, like, why well, try? And, and maybe the other part of it was I didn't really think I could get better. Like, I didn't really think I could improve and grow as a basketball player. I think that one of those two things sums up our spiritual walk very often. That we think, ah, I'm not going to go pro. I'm not going to be a pastor. I'm not going to be an elder. I'm not, I'm not going to be in ministry. I'm just going to coast through this. And so I don't really have to get better at the essentials of following Jesus. And others of us, are we've been so stuck for so long that we think, even if I tried, it's, it's not going to get better. Even if I gave energy and effort and followed what, what the coaches said, like, I'm not going to get any better. I believe, I believe some of you are ignoring the essentials in your faith, which is actually not leaving you where you're at, but it's leading you away, away from the faith. Ooh, that's a heavy word. So my encouragement to you, if you feel stuck, 
If you feel like, you know what, it's never going to get better, listen to this sermon. If you feel like, well, I'm not going to go pro, so why do I need to get better at the things I'm not good at? Why do I need to improve in the ways that, you know what, I'm not really, I'm not going to try hard because I'm good at these two things, but why do I have to care about those? I want to encourage you to give your hearts to the Lord as he would lead you through this service here this morning, all right? So I want to pray for us. I'm going to read the passage, um, and we'll, we're just going to dissect the passage together. So let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we ask for your, your grace on our lives as we listen to your word. We ask for your, uh, your courage as some of us are stuck, as some of us have been playing this, this spiritual life for a long time and we just feel like there's things we're never going to get rid of, so why try? And there's some of us that have just accepted apathy and said, no, it's... I'm not going to go far with this. I'll just stay where I'm at. Jesus, I pray for those souls, those people in the room. I pray that you would awaken in them a longing to grow in the faith, to continue in Jesus. For those people in the room who are ready and hungry, God, I pray that they would be fed today. Those people ready to grow in the essentials and say, I, I want my life to be marked by the kingdom. I pray that you would grow them here this morning. So Jesus, please help us. We need your grace, your goodness, your life in us. Amen. Amen. Since Stephanie already read the passage, I will still read the passage, but we'll just break it down uh, right from the beginning. So uh, in verse 1, chapter 2, it says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged. It's an interesting way for Paul to, to start this verse in this section of, of his letter. He says, I want you to know that I've been struggling for you. I want you to know, like, I'm in, he's actually in prison at the time. I'm going through hardship on your behalf. And he wants them to know about the struggle for one specific reason, that they would be encouraged. Paul is linking his suffering to the encouragement of the people in Colossae. Greg preached a little bit on suffering last week. Actually, his whole sermon was on suffering last week. So I want to throw back up one verse from last week um, that Greg went over. Paul saying something very similar. says, now I rejoice in my sufferings, my struggle for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. First of all, I don't know if Greg touched on this, but Paul is not saying that there's anything lacking in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He's not saying he's filling up what's lacking in, in what Jesus offered for the forgiveness of our sins. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm carrying the gospel to places it would never go, and as I go, I suffer, and thereby I'm filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And so he's connecting suffering to, for, as, a, as a good thing for the sake of the church. And in the verse we just read down here, his struggle to their encouragement. So number one, essential to continuing in our faith is this. Suffering is the catalyst for encouragement. When you suffer, others get the opportunity 
says, be encouraged by your suffering. But you might say, yeah, but I don't, I don't want to suffer. I didn't sign up for this. So why, like, why do I have to put a positive spin on my suffering? Why do I have to make other people think, oh, wow, they're really, they're really getting it? The watching world should be encouraged by the gospel on display in the midst of our suffering, and here's why. As you suffer, for a very brief moment in the lives of the people around you, the spotlight of the world kind of focuses on you just for a second. Whether that's in a conversation where maybe you're going through some a battle of cancer, maybe you're going through marital problems, maybe you're going through some addiction, maybe you're going through a job loss. And so in that moment, in that conversation, as you share your suffering, the person's attention for that moment comes off of themselves and says, like, what's going on in your life? What's, what's the, what are the, the themes in your suffering? And you get for a very brief moment to display the gospel of Jesus in the midst of your suffering. When you get on Facebook, most often you see people complaining about their suffering. Man, I went through this. It was terrible. I, I'm going through this hardship. It's, it's awful. But when you get to put something on Facebook in a conversation where I'm going through something that's awful and it's really hard, but man, is God ministering to me. The billboard of your life is bringing encouragement to the person listening to you. And the way that Paul had said it, he basically said, suffering is the price of the advancement of the kingdom of God. The kingdom never advances without suffering individuals, missionaries, evangelists, going along and bringing the gospel. So as you suffer, church, you get the opportunity to waste your suffering. Wasted suffering is, is a quiet, selfish, inward-focused suffering. And I don't want you to go too extreme with this. It's still healthy for you to cry. It's healthy for you to be sad. Life is hard. I'm not saying that you shouldn't feel any negative emotion. I'm saying in the midst of your negative emotion, what's the key thing that's being proclaimed out of your life. Is it that your life is terrible and God's bad? Or is it that your life is hard and God is good? Suffering is the price of the advancement of the kingdom of God. Don't waste your suffering. Go on uh, to verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. I want to park on this idea of being knit together in love. Uh, the idea here that he's talking about is, is an idea of community, an idea of, hey, like, let's, let's be together in this. And his desire is, as he shares his sufferings, as he shares his struggle with them, he hopes that in them would, and in him, they would be knit together specifically in love. That community would happen as a result of his struggle and his suffering, and the thing that would bond their community together would be love. Being knit together 
in love. Jesus says it this way, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This verse at a glance is kind of just like, oh, that's nice. This verse is one of the most convicting verses in the Bible for me. He says, Jesus says, by this all people, every single person that a Christian should come across should know that you are a disciple of Jesus by the way you love other Christians. Have you ever had anyone say, man, I can tell you're a Christian because you love other Christians really well? We too oftentimes take this and we think, oh, I love the people that are easy. I love the people that get along with me. I love the people that like the likes I like and do the things I do and aren't obnoxious when I talk to them. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. If you want true community, if you want the gospel to go out, all people should know you're my disciples just by how you love each other. So number two, number two essential in the faith is love unites gospel community. This is the kind of love that we see out of 1 Corinthians 13. You've probably all read this, this passage. You've probably all at least heard this passage. You might have even had this read at your wedding. This passage, we take it and we love to put it on other people and say, you're not loving me. The passage says, love is patient. So when someone's not patient with us, like, yeah, you're not loving me. But love is kind. And when someone's not kind to us, we say, wow, you're, you're not being very kind. Do that probably to our kids a lot. Love does not envy. It's not boast. It's not arrogant or rude. When somebody's rude to us, our spouse, our friends, we say, oh, man, you are not very loving. Does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. The kind of love that unites gospel community is a love that is outward focused, not receiving focused. It's a, it's a give first mentality. And so Paul is saying, I'm loving you, I'm suffering, I'm, I'm for you in this. And his, his desire that as he loves them, like this passage says, that love would spring up in their community and they'd be knit together in love. The last phrase there, love never, never ends. I'm sure you're probably like me and you can look back at relationships that you had, best friends that you had and say, Oh, my love for that person definitely ended. I had a friend in high school. We promised we'd be each other's best men in our weddings, and we would be there for each other for the rest of our lives. We haven't spoken in years. And a lot of it was because of personal offense, and we just never tried to work it out. We take love, and we make it selfish, but love is primarily from us, out of us. And as we live that kind of love, it knits us together. Love unites gospel community. We'll go on in the verse. 
that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. We all know what that means, right? The verse actually goes on and says a lot more, so let's slow down, make sure we understand what's happening here. The word together actually governs this next phrase. And actually the phrases that I don't even have up here yet, but I'll, I'll pull them up in a second. So Paul is saying that only in community are you going to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. You can't reach it without community. So what is, what is the knowledge of God's mystery? What's God's mystery? Specifically, it's, it's Christ. He goes on to say, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Without community, you will never experience all of Jesus in your life. You will never experience the refining work of the gospel to the level that is intended if you live in isolation. If you go it alone, if there's parts of you that you just don't share because it's too hard, I'm too messy, I don't know what they'll think about me. So number three, community shows us all of, of Jesus. When I first came out to New Jersey, a lot of you know a little bit of this story, but I grew up in the church, and um, I was a part of Camp Grace for about 13 uh, days. I was about uh, probably 19 years old. Grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor, and I never saw people love each other the way I saw people love each other in camp until I came here. There was something radical about the community that I was thrust into for 13 days. And I was like, if this is what it means to follow Jesus, I want that for forever. I don't want this to run out. We have stories of kids, student leaders who come out to Camp Grace for a summer that maybe aren't even from a Christian home. They give their summer to this, these camps and they go back to their homes and they're so different because they've experienced the love they've in community that their families come to our church. I said, well, what is that about? Like, I want to taste that. I want to be a part of that kind of community, that kind of love. Community shows us all of Jesus. I think the primary way that we experience this as adults is not Camp Grace, right? Like, well, I'm not going to go back to high school, and I'm not going to be a part of Camp Grace the way that Eric was, so what does that look like for me? Like, how can, how can I know more of Jesus in the midst of community? Your marriage, your spouse, the purpose of your marriage is to, is to show you all of Jesus, to encourage you to keep going. I don't want to pretend that, that my marriage is perfect or that we have it all together. We fight. We're growing. But, man, I've seen more of Jesus because of Katie Jean than I have in any other relationship. Men and women, what does your marriage say to your spouse? 
Are you displaying Jesus or are you displaying something else? You don't need to be married to experience this kind of community, though. You can have close friends who reflect the heart of Jesus to you that you would never get unless you let them in. We have so many programs at our church designed in this way. Celebrate Recovery is a space where we can go, where we can share our hurts, our habits, our hang-ups, and specifically that the gospel would go deeper into us and wouldn't leave us the same way as when we walked in. I lead our pastorates network-wide, and I really think pastorates have gotten a bad name. I think that if you're new here, plug your ears. You used to love pastorates. For those who have been around for a while, you think, man, I tasted some bad stuff in pastorates. Wasn't, it wasn't like it should be. I didn't see Jesus the way that I think I should see Jesus. And so pastorates, nah, I'd rather just have a Friday night hangout and I'll do it at my convenience and when it's good for my schedule. But church, that does not demonstrate Jesus to each other the way that we need, the regular interactions that something like pastorates or Celebrate Recovery offers, the rhythm of seeing the same faces over and over and over is so vitally important to your spiritual growth. You can't do it alone. And so community shows us all of Jesus in ways that we wouldn't experience if we just lived in isolation it's not limited to marriage. It's not limited to Camp Grace. It's not limited to, to summer or to uh, to pastorates or or celebrate recovery. It should infiltrate every relationship that we have, if they know Jesus. Community shows us all of Jesus. Move on in the that their hearts may be encouraged. We're going to skip down to verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Here Paul is most likely saying, there are people in your midst that are maybe turning the gospel just slightly. That are maybe saying, uh, the gospel's true, but you know what? Just it needs tweaked this way. There are some scholars who even say that there were people in the church of Colossae who were actually saying that Judaism was the fulfillment of Christianity, not vice versa. Not that Christianity was the fulfillment of Judaism. That Jesus was, was starting something new when he died and was resurrected. So there's people within the church that are bringing plausible arguments, trying to change people's mind about what the gospel really is. And so Paul still is saying that this word together still governs this phrase. And so he's saying if you stick together, if you're in community, you're going to know these wrong arguments. You're going to know this backwards way of thinking. He's saying no one's going to delude you if you stay in community. So number four, community keeps our faith from being diluted. Community keeps our faith from being diluted. And lastly, number five. We're going to find this in the last three verses. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, 
So now I'm in prison. I'm still with you guys. I'm still praying for you, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That's where we get the, the title of this sermon, Walk in Him, Continue in Him. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul's saying, continue on in the faith. Don't stop here. These two verses really serve as a um, summary of all the verses to come. All the verses to come will be birthed out of these words here. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking these. But I want you to get the idea that you have to continue walking. Even though you're saying, like, I'm not going to be an elder. I'm not going to go to the NBA. I'm not going to be a pastor. I'm not going to grow up and be this ministry leader. Paul's saying, I don't care. You have to continue to walk. You have to continue to grow. Don't stagnate. Don't stop where you are. Keep going. So walk in him, rooted and built up. This idea here of rooted is that you're transferred almost like a pot in one, in one pot, or a plant in a pot. You have a plant and you transfer it into something else. It's now, it's now rooted. It's, it's there. It's invested. It's happened. So he's saying in order to walk in me, you need to be rooted you need to be grounded. Built up is this idea of continual growth, not staying stagnant. Established in the faith is this idea of maturity in your faith, that you would grow as a person of faith. And he's saying, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I want to focus on these words, abounding in thanksgiving. At the beginning, he says he wants them to be encouraged. And now at the end, he's saying, you need to abound in thanksgiving. I want to put up a point before I explain this. Thanksgiving guards your soul. Thanksgiving guards your soul. Church, I'm a part of too many conversations. I hear too many conversations of complaining. When we talk to people about what's going on in our lives, why is the first thing out of our mouth a complaint? Why is the first thing out of our mouth what's wrong with our day? I'm a, I do the same thing. I'm meeting with a lot of people right now for marriage counseling, for discipleship. It's really awesome stuff. And I'm finding myself, one of the first things I'll mention is just something hard about my day. Like, man, I'm really tired. My daughter kept me up last night or... Man, I'm exhausted. I've been having meetings all day. Or One of the first things out of our mouths as Christians tends to be complaining. And Paul is saying, to wrap up this idea of walking in him and continuing to walk in him, we need to be people of thanksgiving. People who meet face to face and the first thing out of our mouth isn't a complaint, but it's, man, I thank God for you. Man, I've been praying for this time, and I just rejoice that you're in my life. It guards our souls because of this idea is that complaining fertilizes the seed of discontentment.
the more we complain, the more discontent we are with our reality. And what does that say about the, the reality that God's been sovereign over your life? You're complaining against him, against the hand that you've been dealt. And this discontentment is a thing that paralyzes us to just be okay with our current reality. We're like, I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to change. Things are just going to get worse. So why try? And so we complain about it. And when this spirit of discontentment just begins to grow inside of us, and what happens to our souls is our souls begin to wither. The capacity for love, for community, for rejoicing, for hope, for peace shrinks inside of us to a, to a smaller size than what it was before because we let complaining and discontentment rule us. Church, we need to guard our souls with thanksgiving. And this is the part of the sermon where I put up a famous quote by some old wise dude. Don't have that today for you. I want to put these five things back up. The essentials to continuing our faith. Uh, communion people, if you're not ready already, you can go get ready. Number one, suffering is a catalyst for encouragement. What does your suffering say? Does your suffering say that your God is good, that you believe there's a hope and a future for yourself, that that even as the psalmist says that you're going to taste the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, or does it say God's bad, God's not good, God's not for me, I got to figure this out on my own, and so you world, you better figure it out on your own because God's not going to help you. Essential to continuing in the faith is letting your suffering be a catalyst for encouragement Number two, and essential for your faith, is, is community, and specifically uh, a love that unites gospel community. Worship team, you guys can come up too. Number three, community shows us all of Jesus. There's parts of the gospel that you'll never get unless you're plugged into community. Number four, community keeps our faith from being diluted. You got to stay plugged in with other believers or just words of the day are going to sweep you away. Spirituality will sweep you away from following Jesus. And number five, we need to be a church of thanksgiving for the sake of guarding our souls. At the beginning, I had said that some of you are thinking, well, like, I'm not going to go pro in this whole Christian thing. So I don't really need to practice these essentials. And some of you, you've been stuck so long. You've been deluded for so long. You've been in suffering, but you've not been, let that be an encouragement. You've, you've, you've been complaining for so long that you just think, I'm stuck. It's never going to get better. I'm going to be hopeless for the rest of my life. Church, that's not true. You're not hopeless. You have a future and a hope. Things will not stay this way if you continue to grow in Christ. 
will not abandon you. He will not leave you. He will not let you out on your own. He will walk with you. And so the invitation is not just to a list of five things that you need to make sure you add into your life. The invitation is to Jesus, to walk in him. And so we get the beautiful privilege of taking communion this morning. And what what better way to say, Jesus, I want to walk with you. I'm not going to surrender to the idea that I'm going to be stuck forever. I'm not going to surrender to mediocrity in my faith, but I'm going to continue on in Jesus. So would you stand with me? When you're ready, you can take communion at the different stations that are available to you. The Faith Talk questions are in your bulletin, and I really want to encourage you to to, to read them and talk about them. But I want to pray for you, even as some of you are moving to communion. That's okay, but I want to pray for you. So, Jesus, we, we don't have this list of things that we have to do now to be better Christians, but we have an invitation to know our Savior, an invitation to know Jesus. And so I pray that Living Faith Alliance Church would be marked by knowing Jesus. And these five things would just flow right out of it. We need your help. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.